This morning's scripture reading comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It says, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, good morning, church. We are finishing up. James, I'll be looking at this in a moment. It was um, 1968 on an airplane headed for New York that on the plane's descent, the pilot uh, realized that the landing gear was not engaging. He messed around with the controls without success, and as the plane circled the landing field, the emergency crew moved into position on the runway. Passengers were told of each maneuver in that calm, unemotional voice pilots do so well. They were told to place their heads between their knees and grab their ankles just before impacts. There were tears, a few cries of despair. It was one of those, I can't believe this is happening to me moments. Then over the intercom was heard these words from the pilot, we are beginning our final descent and at this moment, in accordance with international aviation codes established in Geneva, it is my obligation to inform you that if you believe in God, you should commence prayer. You should start praying. And as the story goes, it's a true story, the plane did land safely. But amazing, isn't it? Pushed to the brink, back to the wall, only then... Does our society crack open a hint of recognition that God may be there? And if you believe, you should start praying, commence prayer. And Chuck Swindoll, the one who lived that experience on the plane, put it this way. So there's nothing like crisis to expose the otherwise hidden truth of the soul. Must it take a crisis to bring us to our knees? Well, James is about to land the plane, and prayer seems to be the main thing on James's mind as he comes to the runway and touches ground, and he closes out the book. We see the word pray or prayer used seven times in eight verses. Seven times in eight verses. 
And so if you're not there, I invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of James, the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Now we will work through the final eight verses in James, uh, verses 13 through 20 this morning. It has been, it has been a great study, hasn't it? I mean, very convicting, very convicting. And Pastor James uh, did what has been defined and kind of summarizes the pastor's role to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. That's what, that's what I get to do. Comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And James has done that. He, his words would have indeed comforted the scattered believers who are under severe persecution as Jewish Christians. He reminded them uh, to honor God with what was in their control and, and to trust God with what was out of their control as they waited for the coming of the Lord. But his words were also meant to disturb those comfortable with friendship with the world. Disturb those with a, uh, that were comfortable with a faith that was absent of, wor- of works. He called them to do right, treat others with impartiality, use words that speak life. In other words, to have a show me faith, a faith in action. And as we come to the closing words of James here, it's as if James uh, places an exclamation point at the end of all that he has said. To talk of a faith in action must include the subject of prayer. You see, the vital center, the vital center, the heartbeat of a faith in action is the practice and power of prayer. Let me say that again. Perhaps our main thought for this morning, the heartbeat of a faith in action is the practice and power of prayer. It's as if James says, I've spent five chapters speaking of what faith in action looks like, and we mustn't forget what drives it all, prayer. So when life's getting the best of you, pray. When things are going well, pray. When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, pray. When you see someone wandering from the faith, pray. And that really forms my outline for this morning. First of all, when life is getting the best of you, pray. When life is getting the best of you, pray. James asks the question as he starts out, look with me at verse 13 of James chapter 5. Follow along now, James 5 verse 13. He asks the question, right? Is any of you in trouble? What should that person do? James says, phone a friend. <laughs> He doesn't doesn't say that. Call the church. Is any of you in trouble? He should worry. I mean, why pray when you can worry? No, no, when we're in trouble, we shouldn't quit. We we shouldn't grumble. We shouldn't indulge in self-pity or or fill our day with activities or or go go to the liquor closet. No, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is that your first response? Is that my first instinct? Faith and action first responded to trouble? Prayer. Now, the trouble he, he speaks to here is more than, uh, you know, having to wait in a long line at the Dunks drive through this morning. All right? That's not what he's talking about with trouble. 
or having a bad hair day or someone when you're sitting in your seat as you came into the sanctuary. That's not kind of the trouble he's talking about. The word James uses here for trouble is better translated suffering hardships. Suffering hardships. It's outward circumstances that are getting the best of us. And so as he draws his letter to a close, James really has kind of gone full circle here. He ends where he began. He started by speaking of trials, the need to ask God for wisdom, and to ask believing. And he ends with the same theme. Suffering should drive us to pray. You experiencing trouble? Did you come into this room this morning with trouble on your hearts, on your minds? Lucy, in an old Peanuts comic strip, was complaining about her lousy life and going on and on about her lousy life. Charlie Brown is trying to cheer her up. And so he says to her, kind of with a pat answer, he says, into every life some rain must fall. Well, that didn't seem to help at all. So Charlie Brown goes to another one of his sayings. He said, just remember, life has its mountains and its valleys, its ups and its downs. To which Lucy replied, all I want is ups and ups and ups and ups, right? That's what we want. But that isn't life. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. And Job 5, 7, he says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. See, it really shouldn't surprise us when we have troubles. What should surprise us is, is maybe how little we, we pray when we have troubles. It's surprising, really, is that we have this amazing access to the almighty creator God, and yet how little we sometimes actually pray and talk with him, talk to him. It's kind of like the statistic I saw a while back. It said that the percentage of Americans that own running shoes but don't run is 87%. Right? And I thought, well, how many evangelical Christians who believe in prayer are actually praying? The statistics, I won't give them to you. They, they'll alarm you. And not just for you, for the pastor too. So is life getting the best of you? Pray. Reeling from a broken relationship, pray. Hit with some sudden news that's just absolutely rocked your world, pray. Disturbed or rattled or confused or disheartened, pray. What's troubling you as of late? Prayer is always the right response when in trouble. And, and, and the word pray here, it suggests that we do it on a continual basis, not just on a one-time thing, an arrow prayer to God. No, prayer is to be our constant companion. And it's not just something we do when things are just so bad. It's so bad, now I guess we must pray. Kind of like the church committee, the group of people who are sitting around in the room, and, and they're trying to find some resolution to this issue. And they're going back and forth all night long. And then finally, one of the committee members said, you know, maybe we should stop to pray. Right then, another member piped up and said, oh my, has it come to that? <laughs> like, it's that bad? Honey, we need to pray. Wow, is it that bad? Prayer should be our first response, not our last. See, the answer to our situation is not in the prayer itself, but in God. God has the answer. Prayer is the action that takes us to God for that answer. So, when life's getting the best of you, Pray. James now gives the opposite scenario, second heading this morning, when things are going well, pray. 
When things are going well, pray. Continuing on, verse 13, James asks another question. He says, is anyone happy, cheerful, happy state of mind? Let him sing songs of praise. You say, well, I'm really not much of a singer. And if you stood around me on a Sunday morning, you know that's never stopped me. I saw these words on a poster way back now. It said, just because I can't sing doesn't mean I won't sing. That's my philosophy. Yeah, right. But James' instruction here is that when things are going well, my heart is in that happy place. When I'm experiencing a time of prosperity, my first response again is to pray. I mean, it says sing songs of praise to God. But praise is a prayer in song to God. It's basically what it is. Praise is always the right response when good things are happening. Have you brought praise into this room this morning? Are you giving thanks to God for the blessings, the the peace you're enjoying right now, for for the good things that God is bringing your way? Pray when in trouble. Prayers of praise when your heart is cheerful. And I stop there and I go, which is really harder to do? To, to pray when in trouble or to offer up prayers to God of praise when things are going well? I mean, isn't it really, if we're honest, isn't it the second part of this couplet that's more difficult than the first? I mean, trouble might eventually drive us to our knees, but when things are going well, we can forget God. We can become complacent like the church Jesus addresses in the time of John's writing in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. The church at Laodicea said, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. That was their own assessment, which was quite different than Jesus' assessment of things. For Jesus said in reply, no, you're not. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually, that's what you are. You think you're okay, you don't need anything. And the words of that church, you might recall in Revelation 3, it ends, it ends with a graphic picture of Jesus standing outside the door of their self-sufficient hearts, knocking, waiting to be invited in. Church, don't let your up times, your good times, lull you to a place of complacency that you forget God? Has God been standing outside the door of your doing life, knocking and waiting to be invited in? Well, whether life is getting the best of you or things are going well, James says, pray. Third heading this morning, when you're sick, I would say sick and tired of being sick and tired, pray. Get some prayer around you. When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, what's the answer? Pray. James now expands this notion of prayer and how it's to be worked out in our lives. Again, follow along with me. I'm going to pick it up in verse 14. James asks another question here. He says, is any of you sick? James asks, well, what should that person do? He says, call the faith healers. Nope. Send some money to the TV evangelists. No. Is any of you sick? Try not to bother anyone. No. It says, he, she should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, you know, there's so much been, been written on the anointing of oil. I'm not even going to bother with it. Now, just kidding. I'm just, I am going to. Just hang on to it. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. All right? Because there is so much straightforward stuff here that it can get lost in debating about all the controversial topics in this, in this section. It gets lost. Here's the straight scoop on verses 14 through 16, given in three statements. Straight scoop. Here it is. Statement number one, pretty straightforward stuff. Responsibility to make the first move falls on the sick person. Responsibility to make the first move falls on the sick person. Notice with me the one who takes the initiative here. Verse 14, is any one of you sick? He, she, should call the elders of the church. Now, I say this because sometimes there is this assumption on the part of the one who is sick that the elders should know that they're sick, the pastor should know that they're sick, and they wait for the elders to come calling on them. That they, they must have this direct line that in the middle of the night, God says, oh, by the way, did you know so-and-so is in the hospital? I don't find that out that way. Neither do the elders. No, no, James says, what usually happens is you're disappointed, right? No one came to visit you, no one to call you, right? James makes it clear, don't wait for the elders to call you. The responsibility is what? On the person who is sick. Now, we got to talk about who is the sick person. All right, the meaning of this goes beyond one who has a cold, flu-like symptoms. The word for sick uh, can also be translated weak, describes a person who is without strength. The idea, I believe, is to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. All right? Now, it might be talking about the physical illness here. I believe it goes beyond that, really, to address a spiritual matter, that the weakness may be due to some physical problem, but likely it's speaking to the weariness of soul. Because it can be translated weak, spiritually weak. In many other places in the New Testament, it is translated weak. The thought then, I believe, is weariness, exhaustion caused by the sufferings of life. Now, some say, some go as far as to say that the one who's sick here is one who's spiritually debilitated and, and can't even function. That they are even finding it impossible to pray themselves. What are they to do? What are you to do if you're that sick? When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you can't even pray for yourself? Call for help. It's in times of trouble and suffering and adversity that you have nothing left in you to overcome it. You are spiritually spent. And you're feeling fatigued spiritually. I really think that's a strong implication here is what James is getting at. The problem is we see the word sick and we think it's got to be physical. And we see the word healed and we say it's got to be physical. No, don't have to go there. You really don't. Biblically, you don't have to go there. It's not just my opinion. It's based on something. See, it's really trying and you're getting kind of tired of facing one battle after another. And there's some in this room that know that feeling right now. Some in this room experienced that throughout 2021, and it about wore you out. Do you know what it's like to be on the verge of wearing out spiritually? I do. I mean, I mean it certainly can lead to physical issues, no disputing that. 
But to grow weary, to not have the energy left to fight the next battle, to feel yourself wanting to quit, there's no worse feeling in the world. Well, James' word to you, weary ones, you who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, call for others to pray over you. Don't just drop hints. Don't wait for others to pick up on it or call on you. Call the elders. Why the elders? Statement number two, straight scoop. It's right here. Statement number two, responsibility to care for the spiritual health of the church falls on the elders. That's why the elders, the under-shepherds of Christ. Responsibility to care for the spiritual health of the church falls on the elders. You find that in other places in Scripture, certainly Acts chapter 6, in which the elders are appointed by God to give themselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. In this situation, the elders uh, go to the person, and we have the picture of, of the elders, pastors, praying over that person. I, I've, had, I've had the privilege to do this on, on many occasions, and it's absolutely beautiful, though, though very humbling experience. James then adds, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oh, no. Now what? It's incredible the number of pages written on the meaning of this anointing with oil. It's really impossible for me to cover it all today. But briefly now, here are some ways this has been understood. Okay, and you can do some of the research yourself. You will not be lacking in material. Some think that this is speaking here, this oil, is as medicinal and hygienic as it's used in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, when the good Samaritan pours oil on the wounds of the injured victim to both cleanse and to soothe. That would mean then by their understanding of this that the elders not only use their spiritual means of prayer, but in a sense kind of act as physicians and make sure you're, you're taking your medicine. And, and while it's true, while it's true that when sick you ought to seek proper medical care, I don't believe that's what's going on here. I don't think you want me or any of the elders administering prescriptions to you if you're sick, right? All right. I think that's off the table, at least in my mind. Second idea of this oil, all looking at the physical aspect of it, the physical sickness, which I'm not sure it's even saying that. Some suggest this is a sacrament of extreme unction, wherein the dying is anointed with the oil for the purpose of removing any remnant of sin before they pass away. Well, it's not talking about when someone's passing away. It says they will be healed. So that, we, we got to get rid of that one, in my opinion. Thirdly, others believe that the oil is ceremonial and symbolic, that the oil represents the Holy Spirit and the healing power of God. Now, that view gets a little closer to what I believe this is saying, but in my humble opinion, and I mean that, I see this oil as representative and symbolic as the priests in the Old Testament were anointed with oil. Very spiritual exercise. Why were they anointed with oil? Because it was setting individuals apart for God's use and service. And so to use oil then would be symbolic of consecrating, setting apart that individual, setting aside the sick person spiritually sick, I believe, for God's care and restoration and healing. I mean, there's indeed something spiritual going on here. The elders are called to come to the one who's physically sick or spiritually weary or, or both. 
or maybe just one of those. Their coming was for the purpose of dedicating this individual to the Lord's will and purpose for his or her life. It was an act of being involved in the consecration of one of the sheep. Because the elder's main concern would be the person's spiritual health. That's why it says, if the person has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now, this is not saying, as some would say, that all sickness must be due to some person's unconfessed sin in his life. That's bogus. It isn't always the case. It may be the case. But I don't want you to miss the spiritual dimension to this. Certainly, don't miss the point. If you're still with me, don't miss the point here. The emphasis here is not, underlined, not on the oil. It's not. It is on prayer. And it says, prayer offered in faith is what makes the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up, I believe will restore him spiritually. Now, don't read more into this than, it, than, than is here. Many have abused this verse. Some have taken this verse to say, I don't need any, any doctors, I don't need any medicine, I don't need any prescriptions, all I need is the spiritual uh, prayers of, of the elders, that's it. No, it's not saying that. Now, if it's speaking to physical sickness, then I want to address this matter of physical healing just for a moment here, because this is not saying that all who pray for healing are healed. Any healing, any restoration, any raising up that's going to take place will happen because and only because we have prayed according to God's will. Now, I said it that way for a very definite reason. Because a person not healed, restored, or raised up, some say, It's because that person doesn't have enough faith. How demoralizing is that for the sick person? Not only are you not healed, it's actually your fault because you don't have enough faith. How irresponsible and almost cruel for any pastor or faith healer to ever suggest that. Watch this closely here. If that is what James is saying in this passage, it's because someone doesn't have enough faith. Then look at this passage here. It would be the so-called healer who prayed who is at fault for not having enough faith. Because who's doing the praying offered in faith for the one who's sick? It's the elders who come and pray in faith. So who are the ones then that don't have faith? It'd be the elders if you're going to follow that logic. And by extension, it would be the faith healers. I've never heard them say that. All right. Stay, stay, stay in between the rails here, Brian. The passage says nothing, though, about the lack of faith of the individual sick. Nor can you find it anywhere else. Okay, back to, this is not a guarantee that every prayer, even often in faith for healing, physically now will result in healing. Any healing, any restoration, any raising up that's going to take place will happen because and only because we have prayed according to God's will. God heals as God chooses. It's our responsibility to pray. Now the prayer, power of prayer is not limited to the elders. It begins with the elders, but James is going to broaden that circle to involve others. I've got to give you statement three 
a, st- a straight scoop here. Practice of prayer falls on the entire church. Practice of prayer falls in the entire church. Verse 16 here is both a corrective to spiritual sickness and a preventative. Verse 16, therefore, in context then, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed, spiritually healed, restored, back on your feet again. Now, James here puts his finger on what might be the cause of spiritual sickness and weakness in the church. Two things. Unconfessed sin and prayerlessness. It's first confession, then intercession. Confess your sins to each other. Now, in the Protestant church, we have ignored this verse. Now, I realize it's, we're not commanded anywhere else in Scripture to do this, but we shouldn't disregard this altogether here. There is a place for confessing our sins to each other. So turn to the person next to you and confess your sins to him. (laughs) Kidding, don't do it. Tim was ready to go. She already knows anyway, Tim. (laughs) That would be awkward, right, if I had you do that? But how well are we really doing this admonition? Again, don't go further than what James is saying here. This isn't a call to indiscriminate public dumping of all your sins. That would do more harm than good. Be careful not to go to an extreme here in attempting to obey this by openly confessing every thought and word and struggle and to just air out all your dirty laundry. Reminds me of of, of three ministers who were out on a boat. And as they were kind of sitting on this boat, just relaxing, one of the pastors said, you know, we speak of the importance of confession with our churches, so we really should practice that ourselves. So let's confess one of our struggles of sin to each other. And they all agreed. And so the first, the minister goes first that suggested it. And he said, you know, I struggle with an obsession with golf. I mean, it's, it's really out of control. There are days when I just blow off going to my office or, or, or studying God's word or going on that visit because I just want to play a round of golf. He goes, matter of fact, I can't wait to get back to shore to play some golf right now. Second minister shared, okay, I'll be honest. I had this obsession with cigars. He said, it's, it's out of control. He goes, I, I secretly, I take walks through the woods in order to smoke a cigar. I go to the back of the church where no one can see me, and I, and I smoke a cigar. As a matter of fact, I can't wait to get back to shore to light up a cigar right now. The third minister chimes in, he goes, Wow. <laughs> Well, I guess I'll share my struggle. I struggle with gossip, and I can't wait to get back to shore. <laughs> Confession's a little risky, isn't it? It makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable. They might use it against me. So the question really goes on to the person hearing it. How do you listen to the faults of others? Is this that you can go and share with others, or does it drive you to pray? We ought to listen so that we can pray, because if we don't, it will result in havoc. If we do, it will result in healing. Now, the principle here is we have this, we ought to have this mutual concern for each other, and to be that kind of community where we're confessing and we're praying with each other is powerful. 
But you see, the power and practice of praying is not only what the elders have. The elders play a special role, sure, but prayer is never relegated to a certain group of people. Any one of us in this room can pray effectively. For James adds, the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I stop right there and say, do I believe that? I mean, do I really believe that? Literally, it says, very much strong is the energetic petition of a righteous person. And a righteous person, by the way, is just one who's in right relationship with God. So when life's getting the best of you, pray. When things are going well, pray. When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, call for help. We need prayer. That's the answer. All right, fourth heading this morning. When you see someone wandering from the faith, pray. When you see someone wandering from the faith, pray. Now, on the heels of speaking of a righteous prayer that works powerfully, James uses Elijah as an illustration of one who prayed here in verses 17 through 18. You can, you can read it. I'm going to pull some things out here. And if we had time, we really could look at um, uh, 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19. God told, in that section, God told Elijah that a drought was coming, and, and, and Elijah prayed earnestly, or literally here, he says he prayed with prayer. Why the drought on the people of God? Hang on to this, file it away, we're going to come back to this in a minute. Why? Why this drought? Well, it was a judgment from the Lord because Israel had been led astray. They had wandered away from God under the influence of Ahab and Jezebel. The people turned from the living God to worship Baal, which was known as the God of fertility and the God of the rain clouds. So God says, I can beat that because I am the only true God. I'm the one who controls the weather, God, Baal. And so I'm going to make this drought happen to the nation Israel and stop giving rain for, for, for three and a half years. And Elijah it was a part of that. He saw the work of God through him as he prayed, James tells us. And then, and then when that drought was over, James tells us, Elijah prayed for rain, and the heavens opened and gave rain. <laughs> that's amazing, powerful and effective. And you go, well, that sounds good, Pastor, but I'm not Elijah. We may think, sure, God's going to answer Elijah's prayer. My prayer? Look closely at this verse. It isn't the miracle man or super saint that James is interested in here. He emphasized that Elijah was a man just like us. And you really don't have to look too far to see that while Elijah had his ups, he also had his downs. He was a person just like us. He, he, he struggled with fear. He had to cope with depression. He had issues and physical limitations just like you and me. Elijah is a man just like us and that we too can pray powerfully. You see, what Elijah did, anyone in this room can also do. That's what the final two verses in the book are all about. Again, people have, have, have had a lot of discussions around these last two verses, verse 19 and 20, and ripped it right out of context. It's, let's keep it in context. My brothers, he says, verse 19, one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. 
You see, we shouldn't divorce these last two verses from what James has just been talking about. What has he been talking about? The subject has been prayer. And the illustration is Elijah who stood in the gap between a wandering sinful nation and a holy God. Elijah prayed with prayer. And the prayer of a person in right standing with God is powerful and effective. And Elijah is just like us. Here's the point. Just as Elijah stood in the gap between a wandering nation and God, church, we understand the gap of wandering believers. We ought to be about restoring and rescuing the wanderer. And wanderers in this context are those who are not putting into practice their faith. And what is the first thing we can do in standing in the gap? Pray for that individual. Prayer is actions, never an excuse for inaction. But I want us to see the seriousness of these words that we cannot overlook. Do you know of anyone who has wandered from the Lord? Stand in the gap of that wandering person. Pray that they will come back to the Lord. Is it you who have drifted? Very instructive here. Confess and be forgiven. Perhaps you need to confess it to someone else so you can be restored. You can get back on your feet again, and you can be useful in the hands of God again. James says, whatever's going on, keep prayer going. Prayer is not the preparation for the work, church. It is the work. And down through the ages, all who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. Richard Foster comments on that, and he says, for those explorers in the frontiers of faith, prayer was no little habit tacked onto the periphery of their lives. It was their lives. It was the most serious work of their most productive years. Prayer, he says, nothing draws us closer to the heart of God. You see, The practice and power of prayer is the heartbeat of a faith and action. We mustn't leave the practice of prayer behind as we put into practice our faith. How are we doing in this area? Samuel Chadwick, Wesleyan pastor, years ago, he said it this way. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies. He fears nothing from prayerless work. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom. Now get this, but he trembles when we pray. Many years ago in an area of Africa, the stories told it was a time when Christianity was spreading like crazy. The new believers, they were very excited about their newfound faith, and daily practice, uh, daily prayer was their practice. And it's said that each one would go find their own spot within the wild thickets, and and there they would kind of get on on their knees and just pour out their hearts to God in that one section, someone over here in that section. And after some time, of course, the spots, uh, because it was a daily practice, became well-worn, and these paths were created. And soon, really, one's prayer life was kind of made public. If someone began to neglect his or her prayer life and didn't go to that spot much much lately, it would soon be noticed by others because grass would begin to sprout up at that spot. 
So believers would then gently and lovingly remind those in neglect. They, they would go up to them and say, you know, the grass grows on your path. The grass grows on your path. Has the grass been growing on your path lately? Or mine? Let's pray. Lord, as you know, whenever the subject of prayer comes up, we immediately just feel really guilty. That's not where you're taking us. This could be conviction. There needs to be some adjustment, I'm sure, to our prayer life. I know it's true for me. But it's not about measuring ourselves with someone else or some story we heard about someone getting up at two in the morning to pray for two hours. That's not what you're after. You're after that we believe in the power of prayer, that we practice it in our life, and that that prayer is effective and powerful. It's the mindset you were after, not a daily discipline, though that follows that. And so help us to know how to apply this to our lives, Lord, that we go from here more convinced the need for prayer in our lives and then know how to work that out. Help us with that, I pray in Jesus' name.